1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: Will you become my seventh queen and make your kingdom a client kingdom of mine and bear my children? Check yes or no. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In 2004, a team of British archaeologists discovered something astounding in an ancient Roman cemetery at Hadrian's Wall, near the contemporary border between England and Scotland. 120 partially cremated bodies of Roman soldiers who used to live and patrol along that wall, and two of them were women. Both women were between the ages of 20 and 45 when they died. They'd been cremated individually on their own funeral pyres along with their horses and a treasure trove of grave goods, swords and scabbards, and other items made of glass, silver, and ivory, and each got a hunk of meat on a plate. Everything about these burials was out of the ordinary. Their grave goods came from areas occupied by Sarmatians and Thracians, two sub-tribes of Scythian nomad horse archers. Ancient Romans almost never sacrificed or cremated horses during funerals, but this was a well-established custom among the Scythians. Wait, wait, wait. Can we back up for a minute? They had a
1: hunk of meat on a plate?
0: Okay, so the hunk of meat on the plate. When we talked about the Scythians in the last episode. We got into their burial customs a little bit, but I didn't have time to go into super amounts of detail about it. But this was a Scythian burial custom. People were buried with a chunk of meat on a plate, sometimes with a knife. And this was like a last meal. A lot of the time it was horse meat. And this was a common custom among Scythian warrior nomad tribes.
1: Wow, that's so fascinating.
0: Yeah, so hunk of meat on a plate 2,000 years later, right you still have the hunk of meat. By then it's probably a bit desiccated but um, but it's there. it's meat. <laughs> Anyway, so this is a really interesting thing, like a traditional Scythian burial of these two warrior women in a Roman military cemetery on Hadrian's Wall. And it's almost like two Scythian women warriors were serving with the Roman legions along Hadrian's Wall, buried with all the honors of their homeland when they died. They were probably respected and maybe even high ranking. And we talked about the Scythians a lot in our last episode, warrior horse archer tribes that came from the Eurasian steppes and the proud tradition of the Huns and the Mongols who came after them. In these tribes, women fought on horseback, shooting arrows and hurling spears and javelins alongside the men, and it's these proud independent warrior women who inspired the Greek myth of the Amazon. We tell you all about it in our previous two episodes on the Amazons. And Scythian warrior women serving in the Roman military is actually not as impossible as it sounds. Adrian Mayer, in the book Lives and Legends of Warrior Women in the Ancient World, tells us that under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, who ruled between 161 and 180 AD, a Sarmatian tribe provided 8,000 cavalry to the Roman army, many of which were put to work along Hadrian's Wall in Northern Britain, and it's entirely possible these women were part of that group. The Sarmatians were a Scythian tribe whose women were known to fight alongside the men, and the Roman Empire frequently recruited barbarian tribes to serve as auxiliary units in its military. This discovery gives us a tantalizing hint that sometimes warrior women were among them. But women didn't just serve as rank-and-file soldiers in the ancient world. There were also female generals and queens who led armies into battle, both for the Greeks and Romans and against them.
1: In the first episode, we went into depth on some well-known Amazon myths, common threads in the stories, and what these myths of strong warrior women might have meant in the male-dominated culture of ancient Greece. In the second episode, we looked at the women who inspired the Amazon myth, the real-life Scythian women warriors of the Eurasian steppe.
0: In this episode, we'll be taking the real-life Amazon theme a step further and looking at the lives of specific women warriors who led nations and armies into battle in the ancient world. And we know that there were a lot of women warriors in different cultures throughout the world, but in this episode, we're focusing mainly on Greek and Roman women and Greek and Roman adjacent women because these were such male-dominated societies and it's so easy to get the impression that women really didn't have a lot to do with the military. And that's actually not true. What we're talking about here is women who were military leaders in their world. We also gave you an intro that showed you that sometimes women were in the actual military as auxiliaries, or it's, it's at least very possible that that happens sometimes. So women were part of the military landscape of ancient Greece and Rome, and we want to present a full picture of that. But there are women warriors from many different cultures who are not as ancient Greece and Rome adjacent, and they deserve their own episodes, frankly. So that might be something that we talk about later.
1: Oh, and I wanted to say that we are not covering Boudica in this episode because she's getting her own episode. I just want to flag this now before people let us know on Twitter that we've missed a female warrior who is super important in the Greco-Roman history. We haven't done a lot with the ancient British tribes and we want to tell that story and give you more context. So it is coming. It's going to be epic and just hang in there, guys.
0: Yeah, our next arc is going to have a lot more to do with the Roman interaction with British and Gallic tribes. So Boudica kind of belongs more in that arc and there's just enough to give her her own episode. So we're going to do that. On to what we're talking about today. And our first amazing warrior queen is Tamiris. So we gave you the thumbnail version of Tamiris' story way back in the first episode of our Amazon series. Maybe you remember it. It involved a vat of blood and the severed head of Cyrus the Great, like all good stories do.
1: (laughs) It's not a great ancient history fangirl story if there isn't a vat of blood and Cyrus the Great's head.
0: Right. I think that we've definitely gone through a lot of our episodes going, more severed head of Cyrus the Great, please. like more cowbell.
1: (laughs) And we've aged ourselves.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I made a really old Saturday Night Live joke. Sorry. (laughs)
1: That's all right. I said punked the other day and someone was like, wow, that's an old reference. I was like,
0: screw you. (laughs) Whatever, we're 22. And also you guys should know us well enough by now to know that we are not going to let the Tamiris story go without giving you the entire story of the Vat of Blood and Cyrus the Great's head.
1: Tamiris was a warrior queen of the Massinghetti, an Iranian Scythian tribe that lived east of the Caspian Sea, somewhere around modern day Afghanistan or Turkmenistan. Sometime around 530 BC, Cyrus the Great. And I have to stop for a minute because Cyrus had so many nomenclatures and I want to list them all off because they're really fun.
0: Self-aggrandizing list of titles. Proceed.
1: (laughs) Exactly. He was King of Persia, the Great King, King of Anshan, King of Media. Like social media? I mean, I could be pronouncing that wrong. King of Babylon, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Four Corners of the World and CEO of the Persians and Lord of the Dance. And this guy, with all of his titles, had set his sights on Massagedi.
0: Right, he needed one more title in his belt and that would be Regional Manager of the Masageti. <laughs> I mean, some people are just really insecure about their titles, like Alaric. <clears throat> I mean, but didn't Alexander weep when there was
1: no more world to conquer? Obviously, Cyrus the Great weeps when he can't get a new title.
0: Right, he just, he needs to add to his nomenclatures. So Cyrus was all flushed at that moment from beating Babylon to a pulp, and he must have wanted to expand his kingdom even further. But at first, he didn't want to fight. He sent a proposal of marriage to Tamiris, instructing his emissaries to court her in his name, which just strikes me as very fourth grade. Having your best friend ask out the girl you like, will you become my seventh queen and make your kingdom a client kingdom of mine and bear my children? Check yes or no.
1: (laughs) I mean, we've all been there. We've all asked that question for someone. Right.
0: We've all sent our best friends to ask
1: somebody that question. (laughs) Take me now, (laughs) Cyrus. I mean, it's also possible, Jenny, that Cyrus and Tamiris, you know, the names rhyme. And he was like, I need to have a queen with a name that rhymes with mine.
0: Right. Like Jen and Glenn. Jen's husband's name is Glenn.
1: Yeah, but just because our, our names rhyme, we didn't choose to get married for that reason. Or did
0: we? Or did you? I never
1: really thought about it until someone pointed it out like a few years after we'd been married and I was like, oh, I guess that's true.
0: You know, I never would have thought that you would not have noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> you literally have one letter difference in your names. I
1: don't know. My full name is Jennifer.
0: So who calls? Nobody calls you Jennifer. Only if I'm in trouble. <laughs> same with me Cyrus and Tamiris obviously he he was just like well our names rhyme so this must be fate check yes or no and Tamiris check no and Checking no on Cyrus was actually a super ballsy move. See, Cyrus had expanded the Persian Empire to encompass nearly the entire civilized Near East by this time. He ruled over the largest empire in the world, and he wasn't just a formidable foe. He was terrifying.
1: But still, Tamiris forbid his emissaries from even approaching her. And so, Cyrus decided, okay, if it won't be love, then let it be war, because we all know that's how diplomacy works. (laughs) So, Cyrus assembled an army and marched toward the Araxes River, which lay at the border between his kingdom and hers.
0: Once he got to the river, he and his army got to work, building a bridge to get his army across with elaborate towers and a toll booth and cutting-edge suspension engineering and an observation deck. It was a whole big thing, this bridge. Tamiris saw him doing all this work and thought there has got to be a way to move this whole process along. So she sent Cyrus a message. Quit messing around with your fancy bridge. Let's agree to meet on the side of the river and get down to fighting. Just pick a side. Look,
1: She didn't have any time to waste with this guy building a bridge. She wanted to get this done with. She could go back to being a conqueror.
0: Exactly. Tamiris had, had stuff to do. She's got like an appointment on Tuesday. She does not have time for this bridge. So she even let Cyrus pick the side because she was classy like that. And Cyrus refused to give even an inch of ground to a woman. So the side he picked to fight on was Tamiris' side. Of course he did. Cyrus got a Cyrus. Is Cyrus going to Cyrus? And Tamiris, yet again taking the high road, graciously pulled her army back and let Cyrus cross. But Cyrus did not immediately get down to
1: fighting. See, it was well known at this time that the Massenghetti were total More used to smoking pot and drinking kumis, or fermented mare's milk, than drinking wine. And again, if you listened to our last episode on the Scythians, the Scythians had these fabulous weed saunas, and um, the Greco-Romans did know that they were very much not about the wine.
0: Well, they actually were quite a bit about the wine, but they were known to drink their wine unwatered. They were known for drunkenness, and they were known for not needing a whole lot of wine to get drunk, but maybe that was because they were not diluting their wine anyway. they had this reputation. They had a reputation for being a good time. Let's just say that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Which is fair enough. Live hard, play hard.
0: Yeah, that was like, you know, the Scythian motto, work hard, play hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So instead of fighting... Cyrus prepared a giant feast in his camp, complete with the finest dishes and plenty of wine. Then Cyrus left only a skeleton crew to guard the camp, withdrawing the rest of his army. I mean, he left the Expendables, but he told them that they were being hand-selected for a very special mission, Jenny.
0: Right, this would be a trait of a good leader. They get like the whole, I picked you specially for this mission because you are awesome speech. Oh, yeah. If somebody pulls you aside and asks you to do something and makes a big deal about how special you are for being chosen to do that thing, remember Cyrus the Great and maybe (laughs) give this a little bit of consideration. Absolutely. Right, because this was a honeypot trap, and it attracted a big fly to son, Sparga Pisces, leading a third of his mother's army. He and his troops discovered the massive feast, slaughtered the guards Cyrus had left behind because they were expendable, and set about eating their weight in sheep meat and getting rip-roaring drunk. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Right? They were just going to get lit. I mean, I would. I'd be like, oh, free feast. Heck yeah. Open bar. (laughs) (laughs) Cyrus the Great waited until Sparga Pisces and his warriors were passed out, trashed under the tables, snoring, and then he attacked, slaughtering many and taking Sparga Pisces prisoner.
1: Cyrus sent a message to Tamiris. God, that rhymes. I can't. Cyrus sent a message to Tamiris saying he'd happily return her son if she'd forfeit her kingdom and marry him.
0: Tamiris checked no. No is no,
1: Cyrus. No means no. And Tamiris, in return, demanded that he return her son to her unharmed. And in return, she'd let his army go from her land unharmed. But this offer came with a threat Refuse, and I swear by the sun, bloodthirsty as you are, I will give you your fill of blood.
0: Cyrus ignored this request, and Sparga Pisces committed suicide while imprisoned out of shame at being captured. When Tamaris found out she went into a battle rage, the fight that followed involved hand-to-hand fighting so violent That Herodotus himself said, quote, of all the combats in which the barbarians have engaged in among themselves, I reckon this to have been the fiercest. And that's saying something because Herodotus is the guy who gave us the Battle of Thermopylae and they made a movie about this. It's called 300 or possibly Photoshopped Abs. It's called 300 Photoshopped Abs. (laughs) That's what it's called. So he described some pretty epic battles in his time, and he thought this was the fiercest one. I mean, just in the defense of 300, maybe not all
1: the abs are photoshopped. I mean, maybe they got into really amazing shape.
0: I mean, I bet those guys worked really hard on their abs and were just totally maligning the abs. Yeah, and I feel like that's not fair, guys.
1: You worked really hard for those abs. Well done.
0: Right, well done. And I should be watching this movie because abs.
1: Yeah, I think if we ever get a Patreon, we will watch this movie and comment on it for you guys.
0: We will. It'll be wildly inappropriate and phenomenal. And drunk, like Scythians. Right. We'll, be, we'll get drunk as Scythians. Or war elephants. War elephant Scythians. Oh, wow. That's a great combo.
1: <laughs> Moving on. According to this story, Cyrus died in battle. Tamyris recovered his body, cut off his head, crucified his headless corpse, and dipped his severed head in a vat of blood and gore, saying, quote, I warned you that I would quench your thirst for blood, and so I shall
0: goddamn straight to Myrus. So there are a lot of different accounts of Cyrus's death, and nobody knows for sure how he really died. But Herodotus actually acknowledges that, ending his account with this, quote, of the many different accounts which are given of the death of Cyrus, this which I have followed appears to be the most worthy of credit. And archaeologists keep finding Herodotus to be eerily correct about all kinds of things, especially about the Scythians. So that's good enough evidence for me. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs>
1: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation... Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
0: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They
1: had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
0: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So our next ancient warrior woman is Artemisia the First. Now, Artemisia I was a queen of Halicarnassus, an ancient Greek city-state that's now in modern-day Turkey, around 480 BC. Artemisia at first ruled alongside her husband, but when he died, she assumed rulership as regent for her young son. So we've seen this a few times already in our research, and we've talked about it in other episodes, but one of the ways that women could have power is by taking regency and ruling for their sons.
0: If you are a queen of somewhere and your husband dies and you have a young son, your son is a path to power. And you see this a lot. Gala Placidia did it. Olympias, Alexander the Great's mother did it. Yeah, Agrippina the Younger did it. An entire gender denied power in his society is going to try and get it through back channel ways. And one of those back channel ways was as, you know, ostensibly the son is the ruler. Everyone agrees that the son is the ruler. But if the son is like, you know, two years old, then the mother will make decisions in his name for as long as possible. And sometimes with weaker sons, she would basically do that the whole time.
1: So we're going to get back to Artemisia now. Artemisia was allied to King Xerxes I of Persia during the Greco-Persian Wars. And just to give you some background on the Greco-Persian Wars, this was a multi-generational series of wars, the seeds of which were laid all the way back in 547 BC when Cyrus the Great of Persia, yes, that Cyrus the Great, the one who had his head cut off and dumped in a vat of blood just earlier.
0: Very disrespectful. Very disrespectful. But before this,
1: he conquered Ionia, which at the time was inhabited by the Greeks.
0: Cyrus was known for being a surprisingly lenient conqueror compared to the absolutely brutal Assyrian kings who came before him. He allowed the lands he conquered to keep their traditions and even let their existing rulers stay in place as satraps or governors loyal to him. Artemisia's father had been the satraps of Halicarnassus. But when he took over the region of Ionia, he found holding control of it to be a challenge. The Greeks were fractious. Cyrus appointed his own rulers to bring the independent city-states under control, and these ruled with an iron fist. This only inflamed Greek rebellion, and by 499 BC, the Persians had an all-out war on their hands. By then, King Cyrus had died, and a new king, Darius the Great, had inherited this mess.
1: Darius managed to stamp out the Greek rebellion in 494 BC and then, because Darius was the kind of guy who could just not let things lie, he decided to embark on a revenge invasion of the whole of Greece. Lots of battles happened, the scope of which is beyond our purview at the moment. The Persians more or less raised their way through Greece, burning and pillaging and subjugating. That all ended at the Battle of Marathon, when the Persians suffered a stunning defeat against the Athenians, even though they outnumbered the Greeks two to one. This was the battle where a man named Phidippides.
0: <laughs> Phidippides. Phidippides. <laughs> It's just so so fun to name. Fidipity Doodah. I don't know. It's fun to say. (laughs) It is.
1: Fidipity's Ren all the way from the battlefield to Athens, a distance of 26 miles, give or take, to announce the victory before dying of exhaustion. I guess he forgot to carb load. And that is where we get the name for a marathon run, which is 26.219 miles. I would never have made it. I've done a half marathon and around mile nine, I decided that I could, this is just not worth doing ever again.
0: Well, you did a half marathon and you finished the half marathon. I think that that is an a accomplishment Jen and I I did a full marathon and she did a half marathon at Loch Ness in Inverness a few years ago I don't know I thought it was I wouldn't say easy but I didn't drop dead at the end of it I trained my butt off that's why
1: I mean the thing is Jenny were you fighting a battle before you ran that marathon
0: well, I mean, what happens that Loch Ness stays in Loch Ness?
1: There you go, guys. Jenny Williamson once wrestled the Loch Ness Monster.
0: <laughs> I'm not saying that I did, and I'm not saying that I didn't, okay? But if I did, then the Loch Ness Monster would have asked me to keep all all interactions confidential because the Loch Ness Monster likes to stay anonymous. <laughs> he likes to be off the grid, man. Right, the Loch Ness Monster's really off the grid. So, anyway, <laughs> that was in four... <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> so... That was in 490 BC. Darius didn't plan to give up after this, but he died just four years later and his son Xerxes inherited this war. So it's it's like this war is just like a giant white elephant statue or maybe a candle shaped like a vagina or something that (laughs) keeps getting passed down from family member to family member and you don't want it in your living room but you can't throw it out because it belonged to grandma except it's a war. In 480 BC, 10 years after Darius's humiliating defeat at Marathon, Xerxes led a second invasion of Greece at the head of one of the most massive ancient armies ever assembled. Xerxes'
1: army clashed with Leonidas, king of the Spartans of the very famous 300 fame. I I just said very famous 300 fame. (laughs) At the pass of Thermopylae, which incidentally means hot gates because of some hot springs there. And it just makes me laugh.
0: The hot gates. (laughs) The hot gates. Hot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We are goofs. Okay, moving on. Okay. And this is one of the most Famous Battles of the Ancient World, immortalized in the movie 300, which I should totally watch someday.
0: 300 photoshopped abs or 300 totally authentic abs.
1: We don't know and we haven't seen it and we will definitely watch it before we make any more judgment calls.
0: Right. We're not making judgment calls on the abs anymore. I think it's completely unfair.
1: Yes. During the battle, a force of 7,000 Spartans held back Xerxes' army of about 150,000 strong in a narrow pass high above the Malian Gulf.
0: The Spartans held the pass for seven days. They only lost because one of the locals showed the Persians a narrow foot track that let them circle around and attack the Greeks from behind. He was desperate to get his dip
1: in the hot springs and they've been there for so many days now, Jenny.
0: They've been there for seven days straight. They are wearing their welcome right out. And what are you going to expect? When you're running your war, you have to be respectful of the local community. Otherwise, someone's going to pull this on you. Leonidas, seeing the writing on the wall, sent most of his army home, sticking around with only 300 of his most hardcore Spartans and also 700 thespians to die in a heroic last stand. And thespians, by the way, are people from the ancient Greek city-state of Thespiae, but I was a theater kid, so the idea of 700 thespians guarding a pass in a heroic last stand just kind of cracks me up.
1: I don't know. I mean, I was a stage manager for a while. I could see me totally barking orders like, you go there! Stage right! Battle right! Hit your light! (laughs) That's an
0: arrow! Stay (laughs) on your (laughs) mark! They're they're triple threats. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Xerxes and the Persians won the Battle of Thermopylae, putting all of Greece within their grasp. And that's where Artemisia comes in. Xerxes managed to crush most of the Greek resistance, But not all of it. A fleet of ships was gathering at Salamis, an island about 10 miles west of Athens. Xerxes gathered his best generals and asked their advice on what to do next.
0: Artemisia was one of those generals. Queen of an island region, she came from ocean-going stock. Her mother was from the island of Crete. Artemisia commanded five ships, and while all of Xerxes' generals were telling him to just do it, just go out and crush the Greek navy, just have to believe in yourself, Artemisia was the only one who suggested he hold back. Here's what she said from Herodotus, quote, "'This is my advice to you. Spare your ships and do not fight a battle at sea.' for their men are as superior to yours at sea as men are to women. Why does she have to say that there? I don't get it. Like, do you think she's leaning in? I don't understand. I feel like there's all this shade if you read the ancient sources. Just so you know, women are inferior to men. Just have to put that in there. So, quote, Why need you run the risk of naval actions at all? Do you not hold Athens, the particular objective of your campaign, and do you not control the rest of Greece? I shall explain how I think the enemy will fare. If you do not rush into an engagement at sea but hold the fleet here waiting on shore, master. You will attain your objectives without trouble, for the Greeks cannot put up resistance against you for long. They have no supplies on Salamis, according to my information, nor do they consider it their home. If you bring on a naval battle right now, I'm afraid that your fleet will be destroyed and involve the army as well in defeat." So what she's saying here is basically, look, the Greek army, they can totally beat you at sea. They're superior sailors. But if you just wait them out, they have no supplies on that island and they have no particular claim to it. So they're not going to hold out for long. So just stay on land and ravage their country here and let them do what they want with their ships. Who cares? And she also said this, quote, reflect on this too, my king. Good men usually have bad slaves and bad men, good ones. You as the best of all men have bad slaves. None of these Egyptians, Cypriots, Sicilians, and Pamphylians who are called your allies is of any use. So she totally called, out his other allies who were telling him to just go for this naval battle and I just think that's badass. It's
1: so badass. So when Artemisia gave the speech, all of Xerxes' other allies were aghast.
0: Yeah, because she totally called them on their bullshit. Exactly.
1: Some of her enemies were happy to hear it because they believed she was shooting herself in the foot. But Xerxes respected this advice and respected Artemisia for giving it. Yeah, I mean, there must have been a total shitstorm between Artemisia and the Allies. They must have been really pissed off at her.
0: Right, because she's a woman and she's making them all look bad.
1: Yeah, and Xerxes is saying, you know what? You're the only one who's not afraid to tell me the truth. I kind of like that. Yeah. However, Xerxes didn't listen to Artemisia's advice. He just couldn't pass up a glorious naval battle, so he assembled his own navy and went after the Greeks at Salamis. Results were, as predicted, disastrous for Xerxes, he lost, but Artemisia fought bravely. In the chaos of the battle, she found herself being pursued by an Athenian ship. Hemmed in on all sides by her allies, to escape, Artemisia pulled down her Persian colors and rammed one of the ships on her own side, commanded by a king named Demasithmos. The Athenian captain saw that she was attacking a Persian vessel and said, "Oh, my mistake!" and he backed off, thinking she was one of his allies.
0: And I bet Demasithmos was the guy who was sniggering the- loudest when Artemisia was giving her advice, you know? Don't mess with Artemisia, Damasithymos. No.
1: I mean, she's on our list like Tiberius and Sejanus. Do not mess with her.
0: Artemisia is going to ram your ship. You just best step down. That's all. Artemisia's gonna Artemisia is going to Artemisia. Artemisia is going to Artemisia. Like a sea pirate, which would just be a pirate. Yeah, not a land pirate. Right, not a land <laughs> <laughs> This action was actually one of Artemisia's tried-and-true tactics. She made a practice of carrying different types of flags on her ships. When a Greek ship pursued her, she would hoist the Greek colors just to mess with the enemy's head, and it often worked.
1: Yeah, because she's a pirate.
0: And also because she isn't a queen of a large place, her navy is five ships, so she has to be really clever to make sure that those ships stay alive, you know? She can't afford to just lose one. Exactly.
1: Artemisia escaped without a scratch, and Xerxes liked her style. When he saw her fighting, he famously said, quote, my men have become women and my women men. One of his servants reported that the ship she'd sunk was actually an enemy ship, not one of his own, and nobody on poor Damasithymos' ship survived to say anything different. She also recognized the body of Xerxes' brother, Ariamenes, floating amidst the wreckage after the battle. She retrieved it and brought it to Xerxes.
0: After After the battle, in gratitude, Xerxes gave Artemisia a full suit of Greek armor and sent her captain a spindle and distaff, ha ha, just in case nobody missed that joke from before about how his men were women and his women were men. (laughs) And everybody just had to laugh at that because he was Xerxes. (laughs) It's Like, ha ha, Xerxes. The Greeks had set a ransom of 10,000 drachmas for Artemisia because they, quote, thought it intolerable that a woman could make an expedition against Athens because this is ancient Greece, And the masculinity was so toxic, it could be seen from space. But she slipped through their fingers like a total badass, escaping to the island of Ephesus.
1: You know what? This reminds me of 300, Rise of an Empire. I think this is the plot to that. Because it's all about this naval battle with Artemisia and Xerxes.
0: Yeah. Well, so this was in a movie. The ancient world, Hollywood version. So that is the story of Artemisia. And Jen, here's the next story. Alexander the Great had a sister, you know.
1: No! To be fair, Alexander is not, I don't know a lot about him, but I had no idea he had a sister. I knew he had a brother.
0: Right. So he had a half-sister and she was a Scythian warrior. Of course she was. What else would she be? In 359 BC, King Philip of Macedon, Alexander's dad, married an Illyrian princess, Audata, to seal a treaty with her people, the warlike Dardanians.
1: These people were Scythians. Audata had been raised to ride and fight on the steppe alongside the men in her tribe. And even when she was queen of Macedon, Adata held on to her warrior traditions.
0: Adata had a daughter with King Philip, Sinna, which Adrian Mayer tells us means little bitch. Wow. So I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if this is a nickname that she got after the fact or what, but that is the name that she has. Adata taught her daughter how to ride, hunt, and fight in battle as any good Scythian mother would. Cinna grew up at court with Alexander and his friends, but she didn't adopt the lifestyle of a Macedonian Greek woman, staying home, weaving in her loom, and managing the household. Instead, she followed her father into war. The
1: Macedonian chronicler, Polynaeus, tells us that Cinna was famous for her military strategy and personally fought at the head of the army she led. She showed great courage in battle, even turning the tide in one encounter with the Illyrians, Possibly people she was related to. During this battle, Cynic killed the queen of the Illyrians, another Scythian warrior named Syena, in hand to hand combat with a vicious slash to the throat. As you do, man. The ancient sources don't give us enough about Sinna's military successes. All we have is this tantalizing tidbit. Cinna married a Mintus IV of Macedon, her cousin. Um, and I just, Jenny, his name just makes me think Minty Fresh. And I know that's wrong.
0: It's a Mintus. He had really good dental hygiene. So why don't we just call him Minty Fresh? Because that amuses me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Minty Fresh actually should have inherited the Macedonian throne instead of King Philip. But he was an infant at the time, and Philip, his uncle, took over as regent. And shortly after, Philip just declared himself straight-up King of Macedon, sidelining Minty Fresh. Ooh, Philip.
0: Yeah, see, dudes do it too, it's not just the ladies. So, Philip apparently did not see Minty Fresh as much of a threat. He even married the boy off to his own daughter, But when Philip died, Alexander came onto the throne and immediately had poor Minty Fresh put to death. He did not tolerate potential usurpers, even when their dental hygiene was on point. Cinna was left a young widow in her early 20s and a target. Alexander had to see that she was also a threat to his rule, and the incentive was strong to find someone non-threatening to marry her off to so that she could be kept out of trouble. He actually tried, promising her to Languris, a king of a tribe that lived in what's now Bulgaria. But Languris dropped dead shortly after the in what I can only call a suspicious manner. And I have to say, Jen, whenever somebody drops dead super conveniently in the ancient world, I automatically think poison.
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally get the poison thing, but it's also the ancient world. Man, they had no antibiotics. Like imagine getting a paper cut and getting it infected.
0: You're done. Reading was a contact sport back then. And I mean, any kind of a cut, you could get it infected and, and then just that's it. That's the end of you. Yeah,
1: and remember the water wasn't necessarily very clean. Usually wine or or spirits or beer were much healthier for you. So how do you even clean a cut properly?
0: Yeah, it's actually surprising that anybody lived to adulthood In the ancient world, like that actually surprises me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why, like, a lot of children weren't even named for their first few years of life. It's like, well, we'll see if they stick around. See, this lasts. (laughs) But Cinna kept her independence. And no doubt this took some serious political maneuvering to manage. She did have a daughter, though, with Minty Fresh before he died. And that girl's name was Adia. Sinna left court after her husband's death and raised her daughter the way she was raised to hunt fight, and go to war like a true Scythian warrior nomad, because that is so badass.
0: Yeah, in 323 BC, about 13 years after Sina's husband died, Alexander the Great died of a fever, leaving his empire to the strongest. This left behind an enormous power vacuum. His generals all wanted to prove themselves the strongest and inherit the empire they'd played a role in creating. They immediately started carving up his kingdom between themselves, excluding the royal family. Cinna was not having any of this, and she had a plan to wrest back control of Alexander's empire for herself.
1: Alexander had a half-brother, Philip III, who'd also been sidelined, Philip had a mental disability. Plutarch believed it was because Alexander's mom, Olympias, had tried to poison him in his childhood to eliminate any threat to her own son. And to be honest, that does sound like something Olympias would do.
0: Yeah, we've got to do a full episode on her. She was just the scariest woman of the ancient world. She's amazing.
1: I mean, I feel like her and Agrippina in a cage match would be like, I would pay to see that.
0: Agrippina the older or the younger?
1: The younger
0: Yeah, Agrippina the Younger. I mean, I kind of think that Olympias would chew her up and spit her out.
1: I don't know. I'm hoping after you hear my episode, you might feel differently.
0: We'll do both of those episodes and then we'll see how it, maybe we'll have like a vote in the social media or something. Like who would win in a cage match, Olympias or Agrippina the Younger? Philip III had no political or military power of his own, but he was a very, very valuable pawn. See, he was technically the closest living male relative to Alexander at the moment. And because of this, the Macedonian army, which had been intensely loyal to Alexander, was loyal to him. So for the moment, Whoever controlled Philip III controlled the army. And right now, the people controlling Philip III were a gang of four. Alexander's elite generals, led by his closest companion and top general, Perdiccas.
1: Perdiccas was styling himself as the regent to Alexander's kingdom. But Cinna saw the opportunity to put that kingdom back under the control of Alexander's family. Her side of the family, that is. Her grand plan was this. Mobilize an army march on Babylon, and force the engagement of Philip III with her own daughter, Adia. I mean, this is such a thing we see over and over in the ancient world. Nieces marrying their uncles. oh, At sword point, no less. But Jenny, it's always for the good of the empire.
0: Also, if you can't keep it in the pants keep it in the family.
1: Well, we talked about it in the Amazons. In the I think it was the first episode. We talked about how ancient Greek women really weren't allowed outside of the
0: home. Well, they were allowed outside of the home, but there was a societal expectation that they not go outside of the home. And there was all this stuff about how people wanted to keep property in the family. So because women weren't allowed to own property, the way to do that is to marry a girl to her relative. And sometimes that would be her uncle. Your uncle was seen as a prospect, apparently. So this wasn't such an unrealistic plan, this plan that Senna had. First, she might be young. She was probably in her early 30s by now, but she was already a seasoned military commander who'd fought alongside Philip of Macedon. Second, Alexander's army was, as we said before, intensely loyal to Alexander's family. She had a hunch that if she marched right in there like a conquering hero and forced this engagement at sword point, the military would side with her rather than the generals. She believed the army would rather see Philip III married into the family rather than under the thumb of generals who were of no relation to Alexander.
1: Sina hired a band of mercenaries and marched toward Babylon. Antipater, one of the four generals, rode out to stop her, but Sina made it past him. Either she defeated him in battle, or his army refused to fight the sister of Alexander. I've seen it told both ways, and to be honest, I prefer the battle version.
0: Yeah, I like the battle version too, and this is our podcast. We pick how the story's told here. It's the battle version. <laughs> Perticus sent his brother, Alcides, Cinna's friend in childhood, to face her next in battle. Alcides had been raised at the court with Cinna, and they probably knew each other from childhood. At first, Alcides didn't want to fight her. The sources say he hesitated, and I guess that makes sense. I mean, if she's his childhood friend. But Cinna got right up in his face, saying she'd rather die a glorious death in battle than live as a private citizen stripped of her rank and dominions. Alcides may have been an old friend of Sina's, but he was also known for having a temper. He struck Sinna down right then and there, and this turned out to be a big mistake. Sinna had been popular with Alexander's army, the Macedonian army not far away in Babylon just hanging out waiting for a reason to revolt, and when they heard Sinna had died, they lost it.
1: Alexander's army immediately rebelled, took Sinna's daughter, Adia, into their custody and demanded that she be married to Philip III as Cinna wanted. Adia was about 14 years old. She was a Scythian warrior princess in training with a good head on her shoulders. She married Philip III and with the military's backing, she rose to power as the Queen of Macedon, just as her mother wanted. And for a while, she did really well. Adia made decisions on behalf of Philip, negotiated treaties, spoke before public assemblies, and became a real force to be reckoned with.
0: But it didn't last. The currents of power swirling around Babylon were strong, and Adia was eventually swept under. The balance of control shifted. Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, clawed her way back to power, and she wanted the regency for herself. The army, once loyal to Adia, chose to side with Olympias in a pivotal battle because being Alexander the Great's mom apparently trumps being his niece and also his sister-in-law because the family tree is a circle.
1: See that a lot in ancient history. A lot of circular trees. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Incest circle trees.
1: <laughs> so Adia fled the battlefield with her husband, but Olympias had her tracked down, arrested, and imprisoned. Concerned that Adia might be too much of a lightning rod for rebellion, Olympias sent Adia a rope, a sword, and a cup of hemlock and told her to pick her honorable path. Adea chose the rope and hanged herself in her cell. She was just 20 years old.
0: I love that detail about what Olympias does. I mean, that's such a villainous move. You see it so much
1: later on where an emperor will just be like, you pick your exit, you can slit your throat or you can fall on your sword, but you're getting out of this world one way or another.
0: Right. You don't get a choice about the fact that you're exiting, but you do get to pick your method. If the person who was being forced to commit suicide was high ranking enough or respected enough.
1: There's a really great anecdote where Caligula orders the death of his cousin Gemellus, and he actually sends some soldiers to show him the best way to commit suicide.
0: Well, were they like, okay, so you put your sword here, like right under the breastbone and just like do this, but they weren't going to do it for him. He had to do it himself. Was that how it went?
1: Exactly. It's a total instructional class. And Gamalas is a great student, got it right in (laughs) one.
0: Wow. Anyway, so our next badass woman that we're going to talk about is Arachidamia of Sparta. Arachidemia was a queen of Sparta who lived from 340 to 241 BC. She lived to over 100 years old. And in the first episode, when we were talking about the lives of Greek women, we mentioned as an aside that Spartan women had a little more freedom than the women of Athens.
1: In most of Greece, the ideal woman at this time was not seen and not heard. Women weren't allowed to own property. They were definitely not allowed to vote, and they weren't even supposed to leave the house. It was considered shameful to talk to men they weren't related to. Women in ancient Greece were expected to not only run the household, but to never leave it.
0: Sparta, however, did things a little differently. Throughout the rest of Greece, Spartan women had a certain reputation for being promiscuous and dominating their husbands, and that's saying something because Spartan men were legendary for their toughness. Unlike women in other Greek city-states, women in Sparta were allowed to own and inherit property. And unlike in Athens and other places, girl babies were not more likely to be exposed to the elements than boy babies. Plutarch actually tells us that babies of both sexes were abandoned if they had birth defects or were sickly. So, I don't know, at least being exposed to the elements was kind of an equal opportunity thing.
1: I guess. It sounds dangerously like eugenics, but, you know.
0: That's basically what it was. They wanted to strengthen their stock.
1: Yeah. Girls were given as much food as boys, and this was not the case in Athens, and girls were put through an exercise regime in childhood as rigorous as boys were, ostensibly so that they could grow up to bear strong children. Girls rode horseback, threw javelin and discus, wrestled, and competed in trials of strength. The average marriage age was around 18 and not 14, which was the average marriage age in Athens, and Spartan girls usually married men their own age, which, let's be honest, is refreshing.
0: That's super refreshing. It's so nice to see 18-year-olds marrying 18-year-olds. We don't ask for a lot. So that doesn't mean Sparta was necessarily more enlightened than other Greek city-states. It was an extremely militaristic society, even for the standards of the time. The role of women in that society was to constantly keep bearing strong soldiers. They wanted their women fit and strong so they could bear strong sons to fight in their wars. Also, because Spartan men spent most of their lives at war, the women needed a little more freedom to run things at home. Anyway, so in 272 BC, King Pyrrhus of Epirus... Yay, he's back! He of the Pyrrhic victory and the magic toe and the unit tooth and the commitment to universal spleen healthcare and the epic elephant battles. The universal spleen healthcare. We love you, Pyrrhus. He's really a man of the people, at least when it comes to the spleen. Pyrrhus of Epirus was approached by a prince of Sparta named Cleonymus. Cleonymus had been ignored when they were passing out thrones in Sparta and he wanted to seize the crown he felt was rightfully his by force. Pyrrhus never saw a battle that had absolutely nothing to do with him that he did not feel the need to get immediately involved with, so he signed right up to help Cleonymus take his throne.
1: When they found out what was happening, the senators of Sparta debated sending the women to Crete, where they'd be out of danger. But the women of the time did not like this idea. About 68 years old at the time, Arachidemia marched into the Senate House with her sword in her hand, demanding to know why they thought it was acceptable that the women of Sparta should survive the destruction of their city. Then Arachidemia started giving orders. Pyrrhus was expected the next day, and she commanded all the men who were going to fight in the morning to keep quiet while the women and the elderly got to work digging a defensive trench.
0: She doesn't even think these guys are capable of digging a trench. Sit down, you guys. You've been demoted. We'll handle this.
1: Plutarch says that they dug a trench nine feet wide, six feet deep, and 800 feet long with their own hands. They also sunk wagons into the ground to protect the ditch's flanks.
0: When Pyrrhus arrived, he had with him an army of 27,000 men and 25 war elephants, which are terrifying or, you know, maybe just kind of drunk and misunderstood. Totally drunk and misunderstood. Yeah, but I, I don't think so. I think, I think they were terrifying, but also drunk. The Spartans fought their hearts out, and their women, including the 68-year-old Aracademia, were right there with them in the trenches. Until Pyrrhus and his men began filling it with the dead bodies of his troops, because Pyrrhus, that's what he does. Sees a trench, fills it with dead bodies. But even this didn't give him the upper hand in time, and the Spartans managed to hold Pyrrhus off until reinforcements arrived. Without that trench and the women's help, the Spartan men would have definitely lost the city
1: academia was already elderly for her time when this happened. but she appears in history again 30 years later, now well into her 90s, assisting her grandson Aegis, the fourth in a revolution. See Sparta had become soft.
0: A little soft around the middle.
1: Maybe they were happy they let themselves go a little. It's all right.
0: Yeah, you know, it's okay, but some people did not think this was okay. No, Plutarch
1: did not think this was okay.
0: He thinks rock hard abs until you die, guys. That's what Plutarch thinks. Plutarch has this to say about the state of the city.
1: Quote, When once the love of silver and gold had crept into the city, closely followed by greed and parsimony in the acquisition of wealth and by luxury effeminacy and extravagance in the use and enjoyment of it, Sparta fell away from her noble traits and continued in a low estate that was unworthy of her. And I just, Plutarch, please stop with being judgy and with the effeminacy. Come on.
0: He's super judgy here. And I feel like, of course, you're going to come across this every time you're reading the ancient sources. If they want to talk about somebody weak, they're going to also call them effeminate because we can't talk about that stuff without getting some kind of sideswipe at women and or femme identified people because that's what the ancient world was like freaking ancient world. So Arcademia did not like how soft and poochy and cuddly Sparta was getting, and neither did her grandson. He wanted to bring about a military reformation that would restore the values Sparta was best known for. Equality, austerity, military fitness, getting eaten by the fox under your shirt rather than say a word about, hey, there's a fox under my shirt. Could you tell me this story, please? This is like the quintessential story about the Spartans, like what they're like, and it's one that was going around in the ancient world. It's a story from Plutarch, and it goes like this. a youth having stolen a young fox and hid it under his coat, suffered it to tear out his very bowels with its teeth and claws and died upon the place rather than let it be seen. What is practiced to this very day in Sparta is enough to gain credit to this story, for I myself have seen several of the youths endure whipping to death at the foot of the altar of Diana. So Plutarch is basically telling us this story about a Spartan young boy who had stolen a fox and rather than to cop to his crime, he let the fox like he hid it under his shirt, which I don't know how people didn't notice that and let the fox just sort of eat his innards rather than telling people that he had this fox. It does seem like a thing people would notice, though.
1: Number one, I totally think they noticed that red bushy tail.
0: Number two, (laughs) number two. And maybe all the blood coming out of his shirt. Like maybe they'd notice that and the small growly noises. I don't know. Shirt
1: foxes.
0: (laughs) Shirt foxes. Like that's a thing in Sparta. Those were the values
1: that Aracidamia and Aegis IV wanted to bring back. Bring back the shirt foxes. And being very wealthy, Aracidamia donated a significant amount of money to her grandson's cause as did her daughter, Aegis's mom, Agesistrata, Estrada. But this didn't go well. Aegis was betrayed by his political enemies and imprisoned and then executed.
0: Aegis's mom, Aegis Estrada, not knowing that her son had been killed, begged his jailers to let her and her mother, Aracademia, go in and see him. Plutarch picks up the story, Quote, the guard admitted both the women and after ordered the door of the prison to be locked again and delivered Aracademia first to the executioners. She was now a very aged woman and had lived all her days in very high repute among her countrywomen. After she'd been put to death, the guard ordered a Jess to enter the chamber of execution. So she went in and when she saw her son lying dead upon the ground and her mother's dead body still hanging in the noose, with her own hands, she helped the officers to take her down laid her body out by the side of Aegis, and composed and covered it. And Agesa Estrada, as she rose to present her neck to the noose, said, quote, My only prayer is that this may bring good to Sparta. And I have to say, I think these are some backhanded last words, because they're killing Arachidemia, who was the person who saved their city 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, almost single-handedly. <laughs> next we're going to look at Zenobia. Zenobia was the queen of the Palmyrene Empire located in what's now central Syria between 240 and 274 AD. She became queen at the age of 20 when her husband Odenathus became king. Palmyra was technically a Roman province. It had come under Roman rule about a century earlier and as a crucial trade hub sitting on the trade routes that ran between the Roman Empire and Asia it prospered immensely from the alliance.
0: And Zenobia was celebrated both for her beauty and intelligence. According to the Augustan history, quote, her face was dark and of a swarthy hue. Her eyes were black and powerful beyond the usual want. Her spirit, divinely great, and her beauty incredible. So white were her teeth that many thought she had pearls in place of teeth. So she had really excellent dental hygiene.
1: We were on holiday a few years ago with my husband, and we went to the catacombs. And my husband was saying before the medieval time, the dental hygiene was excellent because there wasn't anything that really contained a lot of sugar. Most things were very natural sugar,
0: like fruit and things like that.
1: Yeah, so people's teeth were a lot better.
0: You know, next time you're in a museum and um, there are skulls or, you know, mummies or something, you can see the teeth. Check out the teeth. See if they look like they've been flossing. I think they washed their teeth in urine in ancient Rome. Did I make that up or is that true?
1: I'm not sure. I think it might be true.
0: It might be true, but I have absolutely not done research on that, so it might be wrong. Edward Gibbons says, quote, Zenobia is perhaps the only female whose superior genius broke through the servile indolence imposed on her sex by the climate and manners of Asia, which way to go, Gibbon, sexism and racism in one short sentence.
1: Oh, Gibbon.
0: Sometimes I put this stuff in here so that you guys understand what we're dealing with, with ancient and Gibbon isn't ancient, but like, you know, older historical texts, just the sexism and the racism, it's rampant and it it does make us angry. Anyway, Zenobia was esteemed the most lovely as well as the most heroic of her sex. Her manly understanding because nothing can be good about a woman that we don't immediately qualify as manly because fragile masculinity. Mhm. Her manly understanding was strengthened and adorned by study. She was not ignorant of the Latin tongue, but possessed in equal perfection the Greek, the Syriac and the Egyptian languages. So, the takeaways on Zenobia were she was beautiful because that is always the most important thing about women to these male writers. She was really really educated. She was she multilingual, she was a person of color, she had great teeth. So Odenathus paid all tribute
1: due to the Roman Emperor and backed up the Roman military in their campaigns. And in return, they more or less let him do whatever he wanted. And what he wanted was to expand. During his reign, he set about conquering the regions of the Levant Mesopotamia, and eastern Anatolia, eventually getting himself crowned king of kings. I mean, come on, this does not end well for Cyrus.
0: But to be fair, this was his ancestral homeland that the rulers would have been called king of kings, I guess, before they were conquered by the Romans. So Zenobia went with Odinathus on campaign a lot. Edward Gibbon described their life together like this, quote, in the intervals of war, Odonathus passionately delighted in the exercise of hunting. He pursued with ardor the wild beasts of the desert, lions, panthers, and bears, and the ardor of Zenobia in that dangerous amusement was not inferior to his own. She had inured her constitution to fatigue, disdained the use of a covered carriage, generally appeared on horseback in a military habit, and sometimes marched several miles on foot at the head of the troops. The success of Odonathus was in a great measure ascribed to her incomparable prudence and fortitude.
1: Odonathus returned to Palmyra in 267 and was assassinated shortly thereafter. Zenobia took control, serving as regent for their young son, and we've seen this already once in this episode, and she had to struggle to consolidate her power. Odinathus's line of succession was relatively new, and his power was based on personal loyalties. That made the transfer of power particularly tricky. In addition, the Roman Empire saw Odinathus as not a king in his own right, but as we mentioned, a governor of a Roman province. They didn't see his position as a family one, and they could basically just send someone else to manage Palmyra at any time.
0: As far as they were concerned, he was regional manager, and he thought he was king of kings. That made it kind of tough.
1: And the problem is, he's regional manager, and they're like, right, well, when one regional manager dies, we just put a new one in. We don't let their son do it, because their son isn't qualified.
0: Here's the thing, though, Jan. The Roman Empire wasn't really in a position to be all picky about this stuff. Just before Odonathus came to power in 263, the Persian king shaped the First had captured the Roman Emperor Valerian and basically kept him around for years just to humiliate this guy, including using him as a human stool to mount his horse. And when he finally killed Valyrian after years of this, it was by pouring molten gold down his throat, which totally happened in Game of Thrones. And then after he was dead, Shapur had Valerian skinned, stuffed, and propped up as a trophy in his temple. His successor, Gallienus, was assassinated shortly after Odonathus was.
1: So the Roman Empire wasn't exactly at its zenith at the moment. It had
0: had a few rough decades and was probably
1: only letting Odonathus build up his own power because it didn't have the manpower to stop him. When Odonathus died, Zenobia looked west and saw an opportunity. The current emperor, Claudius II, was busy fighting in the Balkans and wasn't paying too much attention to Palmyra.
0: Zenobia wasted no time seizing her chance. She assembled an army and attacked the Roman provinces in Syria and Anatolia and then marched into Egypt. By 270 AD, just three years after her husband's death, the entirety of Egypt was under her control and that was a big deal because Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome. That was where all the grain came from that fed the peninsula. Whoever controlled Egypt controlled the empire. This was a direct affront to Roman authority, and in 271, Zenobia made it even more obvious what she was doing by declaring her own son Emperor of Rome, just in case the Romans missed the point. And finally, the guy who was already Emperor of Rome sat up and took notice. He had a big problem on his hands, a Zenobia-shaped problem.
1: So by this time, Claudius II had died of plague, and a guy named Aurelian had taken power. Aurelian was a career soldier who'd spent his life in the Roman military, rising steadily through the ranks. He was disciplined, hardened, and renowned for his prowess fighting on the front lines of the imperial frontiers. The legions even sang a song about him, quote, a thousand, a thousand, a thousand he's killed. I mean, I just wonder what the
0: tune to that song was. A thousand, a thousand, a thousand he's killed. Like, I bet it's peppy. gotta be peppy. And
1: I feel like there has to be some three-part harmony that if we knew it, we'd sing.
0: Jen, can you sing?
1: This isn't a thing I know about you. Um, I can sing in the chorus, but not as a soloist, if you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) You're one of those people, they're like, just, you know, try to sing quieter.
1: (laughs) No, I'm not that bad. I'm not somebody who has to mouth the words. I'm a decent singer, but I'm not a star.
0: So what seems to have particularly stuck it to Aurelian and the Romans in general was that Zenobia was a woman because chauvinism. In the Augustan history, it says, quote, now all shame is exhausted for in the weakened state of the Commonwealth, even women ruled most excellently. For in fact, even a foreigner, Zenobia by name, held the imperial power in the name of her sons, ruling longer than can be endured from one of the female sex. Tenny, I
1: can't continue at the moment because my eyes have rolled into the back of my head and I can't get them to come down. Just
0: let me, just give me a minute. Right. Try to fix your eyes.
1: (sighs) I'm back. So, Aurelian could not let the Roman Empire be beat to a pulp by a woman. He marshaled his forces, ended his predecessor's fights with the Goths, and marched toward Palmyra. Zenobia's army went out to meet him and was steadily pushed back. But Aurelian did not have an easy time of it. His army was constantly set upon by Syrian brigands, And he even took an arrow wound during a siege. So by the time he reached the walls of Palmyra, he and his army were exhausted.
0: Here's a letter recounted in the Historia Augusta, which you have to take with a giant salt lick, but purportedly it was written by Aurelian himself during the siege. Quote, The Romans are saying that I am merely waging a war with a woman. Yet, as a matter of fact, there is as great a force of the enemy as if I had to make war against a man. Shocker. It cannot be told what a store of arrows is here, what great preparations for war, what a store of spears and of stones. There is no section of the wall that is not held by two or three engines of war, and their machines can even hurl fire. Why say more? She fears like a woman and fights as one who fears punishment. So, of course, we have to turn this around and make it all about how afraid she is. Of
1: course. So the battle-hardened warrior Aurelian accepted that Palmyra was a knot. He was just not going to be able to crack. Aurelian sent Zenobia a letter asking her to surrender so he could end this war, because that's the only end that he would accept. Quote, From Aurelian, emperor of the Roman world and Recoverer of the east, to Zenobia and all others who are bound to her by alliance and war. You should have done of your own free will what I now command in my letter. For I bid you surrender, promising that your lives shall be spared, and with the condition that you, Zenobia, together with your children, shall dwell wherever I, acting in accordance with the wish of the most noble senate, shall appoint a place. Your jewels, your gold, your silver, your silks, your horses, your camels, you shall all hand over to the Roman treasury. As for the people of Palmyra, their rights shall be preserved.
0: Super of you, thanks. Zenobia did not have time for this nonsense. She fired back, quote, From Zenobia, Queen of the East to Aurelian Augustus, none save yourself has ever demanded by letter what you now demand. Whatever must be accomplished in matters of war must be done by valor alone. You demand my surrender as though you were not aware that Cleopatra preferred to die a queen rather than remain alive however high her rank. On our side are the Saracens. On our side too the Armenians. The brigands of Syria have defeated your army, Aurelian. What more need be said? If those forces then, which we are expecting from every side, shall arrive, you will of a Surety, lay aside that arrogance with which you now command my surrender as though victorious on every side. So Aurelian really had a lot of nerve, right? He's being defeated and he's writing her this letter demanding her surrender as if he had some kind of leverage to do that with. And of course, she just totally laughed at him. I'm sorry, I have to pick my eyeballs back out again. Just give me a minute.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Are they facing the inside or the outside?
1: I'm not sure
0: this episode had to be written on the insides of our skulls because our eyeballs have rolled so far back into our heads that we will never get them out. So we're just reading this episode off of the insides of our skulls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Aurelian was incensed that a woman dared to be so insolent. He doubled down on his assholery because of course he did. And when her reinforcement showed up, He got them over to his side. Eventually, he broke the siege, and Zenobia was forced to flee her own city on a camel. Her plan was to go to Persia and request help from them against the Romans, but Aurelian's troops captured her as she was trying to cross the Euphrates.
0: The historian Zosimus says that, quote, though much pleased at this sight, yet being of an ambitious disposition, Aurelian became uneasy at the reflection that in future ages, it would not redound to his honor to have conquered a woman. And like, honestly, Aurelian, you have no idea how badly you're coming off right now now. Maybe it doesn't redound on your honor that you're a sexist. Maybe that. Zenobia was captured and brought back to
1: Rome in chains because Aurelian couldn't bring himself to kill a woman because misogyny. She was led through the city in a triumph, a self-aggrandizing parade celebrating Aurelian's victory. And along with her went 10 other warrior women, captives of the Gothic tribes Aurelian had fought, each one wearing a placard around her neck reading Amazon and telling the country they were from.
0: What happened to Zenobia after that? In some versions of the story, she was beheaded. In other versions, she never even made it to the Triumph. She died en route, possibly deliberately starving herself. One account said she was left chained on a dais in the Hippodrome for three days in front of the crowd before being paraded through town and beheaded. Some of the nicer accounts say she retired to a nice villa in the Italian countryside just as Aurelian had promised, and some say she even married a senator. The true story of Zenobia's end has been lost to time.
1: Our next and final warrior queen was Mavia. Mavia was a warrior queen in Syria. There were differences between her and Zenobia, however. First, Mavia ruled about 100 years later, from 375 to 425 AD. Second, she was probably not in the same league as Zenobia power-wise. She was queen over an alliance of nomadic Arab tribes, rather than leading an entire empire and ruling large cities third, she ultimately did a lot better against the Romans than Zenobia ever did.
0: Mavia was the wife of a man named Al-Hawari, king of the nomadic Tanakh Confederation of Tribes. My apologies for my bad pronunciation of those names. She became his co-ruler, and then after he died, she took power alone. Her rebellion was probably religious in nature, and this is a little bit fuzzy because early Christian writers suggest she was a Christian and rebelling because the emperor Valens, the Roman emperor at the time, refused to appoint a bishop who subscribed to her tribe's version of Christianity. But the sources are kind of fuzzy on this, and more modern sources suggest the Roman Empire was actually trying to Christianize Mavia's tribe. Either way, the Roman Empire was
1: pissing her off. So Mavia and her people withdrew to the wilds of the Syrian desert, building a coalition of support. And by 378 AD, she launched her attack on the Roman provinces in Arabia and Palestine, fighting Phoenician troops allied to the Romans. Mavia always personally led her troops into battle.
0: Like a badass.
1: Exactly. And she was well known to be a fearsome fighter, an extremely good horsewoman, and basically terrifying in battle. Her people were horse nomads, similar to the Scythians, and they fought on horseback using guerrilla warfare tactics, hitting the Phoenician army hard and fast while they were vastly outnumbered, and then melting back into the desert like mythical desert pirates.
0: So, the general of the Phoenician troops that were fighting Mavia sent a message asking for reinforcements from Rome. And this basically got him fired for needing assistance fighting a woman, because he did not know the sexism he was dealing with here. But Mavia made the Romans eat their laughter. The ensuing battle was so fierce that the demoted Phoenician general had to get off the sidelines to rescue his Roman superior, who was almost killed in the fighting.
1: Mavia's people have been fighting both with and against the Romans for the last century and were well-versed with their tactics. They easily defeated the Roman defense of Palestine and Phoenicia and Mavia had a lot of support among the local people. The Romans, unable to call up auxiliaries to help them because in this area, Mavia's people would have been the auxiliaries who were forced to surrender.
0: The ecclesiastical historian Rufinus of Aquileia, who lived around the same time as Mavia, says this, quote, Mavia, the queen of the Saracens, began to rock the towns and cities on the borders of Palestine and Arabia with fierce attacks and to lay waste to the neighboring provinces at the same time. And when she had worn down the Roman army in frequent battles, killed many, and put the rest to flight, she was sued for peace.
1: The emperor at that time, Valens, was so desperate for peace that he agreed to the terms Mavia had set. Basically, according to the Christian writers, that he sent her the bishop she chose, an ascetic named Moses. Not
0: that Moses different Moses.
1: This Moses lived in a desert and had impressed her with his miracles and severe lifestyle. This is if you believe the Christian account of the story in which Mavia revolted because Valens wouldn't appoint the bishop she wanted.
0: So the reason that we we keep saying if you believe the contemporary Christian sources is because they were a lot more concerned with this guy Moses and there's a whole lot in there about how he was an ascetic and he was modest and he didn't want to take the position and um, maybe is an adjunct to his story and it seemed like maybe that that's the truth, and maybe they're kind of distorting her story so that they can aggrandize Moses. It's not really that clear. What the historians think is happening is that there's some kind of religious dispute, and that's why Mavia is fighting the Romans so hard. So at any rate, Mavia got to set the terms of her own treaty, and she survived to rule over her tribe. The same year, 378, the Emperor Valens was killed in the Battle of Adrianople. And if you'll remember back in our episode about Alaric of the Visigoths, when Alaric was a very young child, the Gothic Wars happened, where maybe around 200,000 Gothic refugees fleeing the Huns, were ferried over the Danube River in hollow logs, left to starve in refugee camps, and then eventually revolted because of the terrible treatment. The Battle of Adrianople was the major important battle in this conflict.
1: In this battle, Valens died. There are several accounts of how that happened. One says he took an arrow to the lung, but the most colorful comes from the historian Sozomen. Quote, Valens' cavalry was dispersed, his infantry compelled to retreat, and... Pursued by the enemy, the refugee Goths, he dismounted from his horse, and with a few attendants, entered into a small house or tower where he secreted himself. The barbarians were in full pursuit and went beyond the tower, not suspecting that he had selected it for his place of concealment. As the last detachment of the barbarians was passing by the tower, the attendants of the emperor let fly a volley of arrows from their covert, which immediately led to the exclamation that Valens was concealed within the building.
0: Way to go, guys. way to mess things up for everybody
1: the enemy returned and encompassed the tower they collected vast quantities of wood from the country around which they piled up against the tower and finally set fire to the mass a wind which had happened to arise favored the progress of the conflagration and in a short period the tower with all that it contained, including the emperor and his attendants, was destroyed.
0: After losing that battle and their emperor, the Roman Empire now had an army of angry rampaging goths on its hands, hacking and burning their way through Thrace, which up until then had become a gentrified suburb of the Roman Empire packed full of rich villas, and making their way to Constantinople. They were just hacking through the Starbucks. They were hacking through the Target and the Barnes and Noble, right? The Pottery Barn, the Yankee Candle, all that That was going up in flames. You know, the Sephiro trashed, destroyed. It was a giant tragedy. The Roman Empire, desperate, turned to Mavia for help, and she sent a detachment of cavalry that helped turn the tide in favor of the Romans, ending the Gothic War. And so we've come full circle back to Alaric. Because
1: everything leads to Alaric, doesn't it?
0: All roads lead to Alaric of the Visigoths. So
1: that is the story of Mavia. And that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at Ancient History fan, Instagram, or Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl, or on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts from.
0: And if you like what we do and you want to support the podcast, feel free to leave us a review. This helps us get seen, helps us rise in the algorithms, and makes our podcast discoverable to more people. Also, you can really support the podcast by contributing to our Ko-Fi fund. Every time I get confused about how to pronounce Ko-Fi. Coffee, kofi. I just say coffee. A coffee fun. <laughs> the Long Islander and me comes out. <laughs> Jen has like a, a plethora of different accents in her repertoire. It's on the homepage, the button that says buy us a latte. Every little bit helps keep the podcast going. Thank you guys so much. Thank you.